Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Still Saka, on to that left! Another Boxing Day belter for Kai Osaka! This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, festy good, festive, goodly afternoon to you, even. Festive, goodly afternoon to you too, and to all the listeners. Hope you've you're having a good festive period, and hope it's ongoing. Hope you're sort of managing to stretch it out into the new year. Yeah, uh, those like morning beers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. How Basically, was, exactly that. Yeah. How was your Christmas? Hope you had a nice time. It was time. good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, quite low key, but good. Um, went to my in-laws, and yeah, it was lovely. How was yours? Again, very low key, obviously, given the the uh, the world we're living in at the moment. So just a nice family dinner, and uh, and yeah, just lots of food and watching stuff on TV and movies and things like that. So good Christmas stuff, you know, stuff you don't have time to do normally. So. No, exactly. It's nice. It's nice. It and is. we've got a bit more time than we thought we would have, I guess, what with Arsenal not playing Wolves right now. Yes. I mean, that's what should be going on right at this very minute. We should be, what I would say, 3-0 up at this point? Yeah. 7 or 8, maybe. Well, is it well, half an hour into the game? Half, it's not even half time, you know. Oh, uh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that maybe the Second half, half goal flurry times. to come, you know. Sure. Yeah, no, it does feel... Uh, Slightly odd that we're, we're, I'm supposed to be out the ground right now. Um, mm. But hey, it gives us an opportunity to spend maybe more time than we would have done reflecting on Arsenal's 5-0 win over Norwich. Yes, it does. I mean, and it's a shame. I think we should just um, acknowledge that while everyone can understand why a game might be postponed and for... Uh, clubs and the Premier League authorities and officials and and everything else is a bit of a little bit of a headache for them mm. when it comes to rescheduling and trying to fit fixtures in uh, and all that. But for fans, you know, who come from near and far, it is mm. a, a real kick in the nuts when you've made plans. You know, if you're a local guy um, who lives just around the corner, it's not as inconvenient than if you're coming from, you know, further away, whether it's across the Atlantic or whatever it might be. But it's still a bad thing for supporters, uh, even if you can understand why 
why things like this happen. So I'm sorry for anybody out there who was planning to uh, come to the game um, and then couldn't. And I've had, you know, plenty of messages and tweets from people who were planning to do exactly that. And circumstances being what they are, it is off. We all understand why. But it's worth taking a moment just to acknowledge that, you know, for fans, this is something just a bit more than a mild inconvenience. Definitely. And I think it being the time of year that it is, yeah. you know, people have time off work, they make plans to come, as you say, often from abroad. This might be the the first Arsenal game they're coming to, it might be the only game they're coming to this decade, you know, and for it to be called off is a heart-wrenching mm. thing. I saw Granit Xhaka um, reached out to one fan and offered them tickets for the Man City game, but obviously that's not going to be everybody's experience. So as fantastic as yeah. that was... Um, you know, I have huge sympathy with other people whose plans are disrupted and uh, there's going to be more disruption, I'm I'm sure. It, it's that curious thing of it. So it's quite a good thing probably for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal who were probably quite worried about playing twice in 48 hours yeah. and then having to face Man City. But for fans, and ultimately the matches happen primarily to entertain fans, mm. it's not great. What do you think about the... The postponement then, just leaving that part aside, was there a part of you that thought, actually, this could be quite uh, good for us because, look, we were going to play twice in 48 hours. And I think if you're going to play against a team that's also played twice in 48 hours, you know, it's not ideal. I don't think it's great for the players. I don't think it's great for the quality of the games that you get when you ask players to perform at that level um, in such a short space of time. But it would have been the case that Wolves had basically 10 days rest going into this game. So from that point of view, even though we've got momentum, and I think fatigue is one of those things which really impacts you when things aren't going particularly well when you're playing well and when you're feeling confident and happy about your football you don't necessarily notice the aches and the niggles and the strains as as much as you would if you know you're having a difficult time so I was a little bit torn on that that I thought you know actually the momentum is good maybe we could just make a few changes here and there give it a good push against Wolves and then see how we are for Man City um, but maybe the, the the best thing for us uh, not so much for the Man City game, but maybe for whenever we play Wolves, is that we will have, uh, A, either a bit more time between the games, or B, if there is some fixture congestion, it's on both sides, and there isn't one coming into it with a real advantage and the other with a big handicap. Yeah, I think that was what was particularly tricky about the Wolves situation, that I think we would have played two games in the period where they'd essentially not had any. Uh, and, and of course, not training or having players ill or injured is not an ideal preparation for them either. Um, but I did worry slightly about that aspect of it. On the other hand, we're playing really well. We've got momentum. It's a home game. Mm. I think you would have fancied Arsenal probably to win that one uh, they'd have a good chance, certainly, of winning that one. And it might have, um, you know, given us a more secure position in the table. I, I, I'm sort of equivocal about it. I think it changes a little bit how I feel about the Man City game. I feel like um, we've got a bit more time to prepare for that. And it, it makes me feel a little bit more optimistic, maybe, about what we might be able to <laughs> produce against them. Um, okay. No, you, you don't think oh, so? Well, I mean, I think, you know, on paper it does. Um, but But... Look, maybe we'll deal with that in the second. I know what you're saying exactly. We should be better prepared. We should be more rested. And, you know, in theory, we we should be better able to cope with whatever's going to happen on the day. But I just, 
you know, I have I have some concerns about the um, the record that we have in these kind of games. Well, maybe we'll keep that for the second part of the show. I think I might. Yeah, have a I, I just think like. Um, well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think if you if we had the Wolves game, I think that it would have been the smart thing to put our, our energy and our focus on winning that. And yeah. in case Sarah Sarah against Man City, I think having a bit more lead up time slightly shifts that. Yeah. But I do think that these postponements are problematic. Actually, like it, increasingly, I am a little bit concerned about kind of the integrity of the competition. I mean, it's things like, you know, Spurs have got, what is it, whatever it is, three games in hand or something mm. like that. If they go out in January and buy three players, they will have a different lineup for those fixtures than they would have had, you know, yeah, and potentially yeah, yeah. a stronger one. I, I think that, um, you know, you see Crystal Palace tried to get a game called off the other day uh, against Spurs, actually. And when they ended up playing, there were there was no enforced changes to their starting lineup, and I kind of feel like, <laughs> I mean, granted, it wasn't called off ultimately, but I, I do think the lack of transparency around why games are and aren't mm. happening is a bit of a problem. Do you think that that maybe the you know we we know now that there is a bar where you've got to have thirteen outfield players and a goalkeeper um, to to go ahead with the game. And if you don't have that, mm. the game doesn't go ahead. But where do you stand on the COVID plus injuries aspect of this in that, you know, you might have eight injuries and two COVID cases and that might be reason to get the game called off. Is that fair? Is that not just something that clubs should have to deal with? Like what happens in ordinary circumstances if a club has eight, nine, ten injuries plus suspensions is that not just something that they have to deal with, you know, because of whatever yeah. their squad building or because of their behavior or because of, you know, whatever it might be, that is something they're going to have to do. You can't just like get a load of players sent off and uh, suspended and a few p players injured and blah, 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 and then say, look, we can't play. Sorry about that. It, it's really tricky because obviously they named their 25-man squads mm. at the start of the season and I presume the 13 have to be kind of derived from that. But of course, they've all largely got academy squads who are all eligible to play in these games as well. Um, maybe my position is kind of uh, influenced by the fact that Arsenal have got off relatively light on the injury and illness front thus far. Well, But I, uh, mm. I, I think that... Um, Oh, do you not think that? I think that. Well, I mean, I think fortunate. we, in, in some ways, but I mean, we've had a number of COVID cases recently. We'd four right backs missing for the Norwich game. So mm -hmm. I know that's not sufficient for the game to be postponed or called off or anything like that. But yeah, maybe we've been lucky in that whatever injuries and uh, COVID um, uh, absences we, we've had, we've been able to cope with. But mm -hmm. I just wonder if other clubs, is it A, that they have had more injuries in COVID cases or B, are they not managing the protocols well enough to avoid COVID cases? In which case, that's another big discussion, isn't it? Yeah. And also, if you have to close the training ground, it becomes very difficult to function as a club, as a team. You know, if you, if you can't train uh, as a group, then fulfilling matches, I think, is extremely unlikely. So that's sort of like the extreme case. But I... I Having sort of, you know, we're all finding out about this as we go along. Mm. Um, but my position now is kind of, I sort of think these games 
should be being played. Um, and, and I kind of feel like if that meant six kids in the starting lineup, I actually, I sort of think that that would be the right thing to do, actually. Yeah, I, 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 yeah it... it I, I, it seems odd to me that we're making such big concessions. Obviously, if a club has a very serious outbreak of illness or, uh, you know, has to do a deep clean on their entire training ground and can't train, then I appreciate they can't play. But if it's a case of, well, we'd have to promote kids from the academy, then I sort of think so be it. Well, the, the, this is where it comes back to the issue that you mentioned at the start, which is transparency. When it comes to a club being uh, looking for a game called off, should there not be a public um, declaration of what the issue is? Like we've got eight COVID cases, we've got three hamstrings, uh, a couple of suspensions, blah, blah, blah. That way people can look at it and go, actually... Yeah, you can see how that would be a good idea because there is a, obviously a health uh, um, concern for players uh, that have yeah. COVID. You don't want anyone spreading it. But we don't know what the what the balance is, a percentage of the absences should be down to COVID if you're having a game called off for COVID. So. But in an ordinary year, like in a mm. pre-COVID year, how many players at this time of year are playing with an injury or with a cold? Yeah. I'd say a pretty high percentage. And so where's that line between an injury that I could play with, but in order to get this game called off, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. we're going to report it as more as something significant. Yeah. yeah, I think there might be some gaming of the uh, the circumstances going on, to be perfectly honest. But look, I, I, yeah, yeah. Go on, they're all carrying injuries all the time. Do you know what mm. I mean? And particularly when the game's coming as thick and fast yeah. as they are now. So yeah, it's an... You know, I think Arsenal playing twice in 48 hours, that's a kind of separate issue and one that was probably unnecessary and could have been scheduled differently. And for that reason, I'm sort of pleased that it's off, as yeah. much as I'm sorry for those fans who've made plans. But, yeah, generally, I do wonder if some of these games could be fulfilled yeah. and if that might be better. Yeah. Okay, well, look... Let's move on and let's talk about what we did at Norwich because it was very good, very fun, very enjoyable. Even if we did have four COVID absences, four right-backs, Tommy Asu, Chambers, Cedric and Ainsley Maitland-Niles all missing uh, due to COVID, according to a club update, which meant that there was one change from the team that beat Leeds. That was Ben White moving to right-back, uh, Rob Holding coming in at centre-half, and everything else was the same. Um, very much a case, I think, of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, don't tinker with something that is working as well as it has been working of late. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean... <sighs> The first half, or the way that we play, the way that we started, the way that we scored that early goal, um, it just seems that this is a club, or a team rather, that is really beginning to feel confident in what it's doing, where it's doing it on the pitch, and how effective it can be in doing it. I mean, the five goals that we scored um, in this game make it 14 from our last four in the Premier League when you add in the... Um, the goals that we scored against Sunderland, it's 19 goals in five games, which is as close to a glut as ever we've got under Mikel Arteta. We're not, we're not a very glutty team when it comes to goal scoring. So this is a very nice uh, development. Yeah, there's a crazy stat of Arsenal have scored more than four goals in three consecutive games, uh, albeit in all competitions, for the first time since 1991. Wow. So... 
yeah, we ne- we never did that at any point in Arsene Wenger's reign. So this is a glut by any measure um, and something to revel in. Just touching on that right back thing, by the way, I mm. didn't know when the team was announced. I was still on the in the car on the way to the stadium, and I didn't know about the COVID situation that had affected Tommy Asu, Cedric, Maitland Niles. But I just assumed that Tommy Asu was still injured and thought, well, I, I thought White had been picked basically to be the right back. Yeah. Um, just because I I wonder if Mikel Arteta perhaps like me is not entirely convinced by some of the alternatives. I think <laughs> Rob Holding is our best sub defender in some respects. So I'd sort of rather him come in than some of those guys at right back. Yes. Uh, I tend to agree. Like, you know, Cedric, um, yeah, doesn't do it for me, to be honest. Chambers has had his chances and isn't really in the squad. Uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who I think we'll probably talk about a bit later on in in relation to um, uh, another issue, you know, doesn't want to play there or hasn't wanted to play there, even though he says he will play there, but, you know, isn't being picked there. And really, when we talk about, you know, four right-back options, he is an emergency right-back option. I don't think he's a credible uh, option in the mind of the manager uh, because because when he has played this season, he has played in midfield. So I do think the Ben White selection was interesting, even if it was kind of in force, because he has played there a bit in the past, hasn't he? He has, yeah. I think he did it for Brighton once or twice. And am I right in thinking that Chambers wasn't actually cited as a COVID case? I Um, think he was. I'd have to, I'll go and check while you continue. It's just specifically the the right-back area of the dressing room, the the place where all the right-backs sit. There'd been a lot of transmission in that part. Um, But yeah, I I think White has all the tools to play in that role, as Arsenal do it. You know, we've spoken about Tommy Asu almost being a third centre-half at times. And White is... You know, very adept on the ball. We saw some good crossfield passes from him. One set up a chance for Martinelli that was disallowed for offside. Um, so yeah, I, I think he was quite a good fit, and I think it actually it destabilised our defence less than it would have done to bring, say, mm. Cedric in. You are right to say that about Chambers. Uh, it was Cedric, yeah. Tommy Asu, and Maitland Niles all missed today's squad uh, after testing positive with COVID. But was Chambers not? Absent from the previous game because of COVID, uh, I, I think remember. weirdly enough, I think he was he was at Leeds um, that for the first time on the bench since the Man City game, right? Uh, because we had suffered a couple of other COVID cases. I think it was Sambi Laconga and maybe I, I can't remember. There was somebody mm. else, um, and I remember thinking, "Oh, Chambers is back on the bench," and then this week. We need a right back, and he's he's not again. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I think his time at Arsenal may be coming to a, an end sooner rather than later. It seems to me, you know, just based purely on the fact that he's not being selected. I really. think so, and we've we've spoken before about how um, when it comes to the physical profile he has, it's quite analogous with Tommy Asu. So it yeah. says a bit when he's not playing um, at all or not even making the bench. But let's talk about the players who did play, and Bakayo Saka, um, he really seems now to have found a bit of rhythm after what I suspect was a more difficult start to the season than many uh, would have appreciated. Um, you know, he went all the way in the European Championships with England. There was the the fallout and all the 
all the emotional um, baggage I think that he would have had to uh, contend with having missed that penalty. It's a lot to deal with as a as a young player. Uh, I know he got a lot of support, but it's still something I'm sure that in your mind, you know, when the lights go out at night, you're sitting there thinking about that a lot, um, not to mm. mention the physical aspect of it. But, you know, he's he's really looking like he's finding some form again, some rhythm again, some confidence again. Um, the first goal... Uh, I think it was one of those, I think I said in the blog, it's one of those goals that looks quite easy, but I think it has something to do with playing the bottom of the table team and also second choice goalkeeper, which isn't to take anything away from him because, you know, it's great to see him scoring and, and getting on the score sheet a bit more regularly um, of late is is excellent. But um, a well-worked goal um, and nice to see Saka on the end of something and providing some some end product, which I think is going to is really going to stand him in good stead. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Dean Smith was pretty furious after the game about Norwich's willingness to let Saka come in from the right hand mm. side and shoot on his left foot. But I think you've got to give Saka credit too. His his balance, his ability to shift his weight. Uh, is really something and we saw him do it actually a few times against Leeds the week before and, and not quite apply mm. the finishing touch this time he got it um, and it was a great start Arsenal are back to starting games well which they have done for the majority of the season there was a little period where they didn't quite have that intensity from the first whistle but I think they're they're reclaiming that and it, it, it was a big dent to Norwich's confidence because they mm. had a decent performance recently against uh, Manchester United side who admittedly are in <clears throat> pretty poor form themselves um, and I you know I thought if they could sort of match that they could provide a, a test for this Arsenal team but they really yeah they never really did to be honest. no um, there was a period I think after the the first goal I mean just we scored after 16 minutes against Leeds and six minutes uh, against Norwich so those yeah. bright stars that you're talking about are, are good and they help us be a bit more front-footed I think um, I don't want to sort of go into granular detail on all of the goals, but I think for the first two goals, we could talk about Gabriel Martinelli and his pressing. Um, he chased down the defender who made a pass, which was then intercepted by Kieran Tierney, and the ball then moved across to Sackham. For the second goal, the way that he took off after the, the Norwich player won the ball back, um, and then played a pass back into Martin Odegaard, who played it to Kieran Tierney on the overlap to, to score that second goal. The work that he is doing, even if he doesn't score, is helping us provide end product and helping us create attacking opportunities, which I think we're being really quite efficient with. I don't know, um, I'm sure somebody has done it, whether our... Um, we're outperforming our XG or anything like that in these games, but you know we're we're being efficient with our our finishing, more clinical, um, and that's sometimes been an issue for us in the not too distant past. Yeah, definitely. I think we are uh, slightly outperforming our our XG, as as is kind of always the case if you score four or five goals in a game. But we are. I think our XG is hovering around sort of in some of these big thrashes around three, which is still really, really good and suggests that we're, mm. it's not like we're fluking 
goals into the top corner from 30 yards. You know, we are creating dangerous opportunities and there were other chances in this game we might have taken. I mean, in that first half, you think of Alex Lacazette's header, for example, where he sort of weirdly didn't get any direction on it, just sort of headed it back where he came from. That was a great chance. Um, I think Martinelli's work rate is a huge part of what makes him so valuable to this team. It's weird. I feel like at Arsenal... Sometimes in recent years, we've had discussions of like, you know, you can't ask this player to do that. It's not their game. You know, I'm thinking of Mesut Ozil for a long period. And even sometimes Pierre-Eka Bamiang, you know, we're asking him to chase back and, you know, it's not what he does. But then you look at the best teams in this league, Liverpool, Manchester City, every single player does that. Every single player. And they are the best you know, and they work so hard mm. off the ball. And Martinelli is a, one of those genuine two-way players who's uh, as intense without the ball as he is with it. And it really has brought something to this team. And it's one of the the big changes I think we've seen in this most recent little good run, that the glut of goals that we're talking about. I do think winning the ball back sooner, higher, is creating... Yeah chances for this team and, and and that second goal was a great example in terms of Norwich being unbalanced all being over to one side Tierney having all that space to run into and obviously it's a, a brilliant ball from Odegaard yeah. and a really good finish as well it is a really good finish and you know we talked on the, after the Everton game if you remember about yeah. the difficulty we had in winning the ball back high up the pitch and you know how precise you need to be when you're playing from deep in order to score goals was it was it was it West Ham no it was Southampton wasn't it that that great goal against Southampton yeah. where we worked it out from the back and upfield and Lacazette uh, finished but like it was so precise and there's no real margin for error in that where uh, whereas now when you're looking at Martinelli and you're looking at the way he's turning over the ball and what we're doing with it and we've got players with the pace and the athleticism and the ability to get into the box and get into those forward positions there were a couple of moments there was one wasn't there there was a tyranny pass um that that from the left hand oh. side that went behind everybody missed everybody and it was yeah. one of those where i was like wow okay maybe we need to work a little bit on staggering our runs into the box but we'd what four or five players in the box, yeah, you know, I think that was quite unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, really, really close to to finding somebody there, yeah. um, and 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 that was encouraging. I mean, Norwich, a bit like Southampton. If I was designing a team for this Arsenal side to play against, and again, this is not to detract from anything we did, it, they mm. would look a bit like Norwich because they press you um, quite high up the pitch, but not particularly well, which we love. Yeah. You know, like that's that's meat and drink to like the likes of Ben White and Ramsdale and Partey to kind of pick through those lines. And then they they actually played quite a high line against Arsenal, which with Martinelli and Saka going in behind just spelt big, big problems for them. But yeah, I, mean, I, I still think we have to do our job and I, I do think we did it very, very well on books. No, I agree. I agree. I, I don't think that tactic of Lacazette dropping deep and allowing Martinelli, Martinelli to run in was quite as effective because I think Norwich were a bit wise to it, having seen it in a few recent games. Yeah. And there was a period between the first and the second goal where the game... 
you know, began to get a bit physical. I think that was Norwich's answer. Uh, there were a mm -hmm. few kicks. There was one on Saka. There was an incident with Ben White making a, a tackle. Granite Xhaka got booked for being Granite Xhaka. I'm not quite sure what he got booked for. He went sliding in and, yeah. you know, there was a bit of a bit of a bit of afters, but I don't know why Xhaka got booked and, and other people didn't. Um, I mean, was that worrying? In that period for you, did you feel like maybe we were falling into a trap uh, in the sense that, you know, there was a bit more from yeah. the Norwich crowd? You don't want to get the home team fired up when Definitely. you've got a one-goal lead. But, um, I mean, that was the way that they were trying to counter the dominance that we had. Yeah, and it was kind of all they had really on the day. And I have to be mm. honest, I was sat there in the press box and I was thinking back to the Leeds game mm. and Shaka getting booked, you know, somewhat unnecessarily there and looking at that happening again. And my, my honest reaction in the moment was, Oh, come on, granite, you know, keep it together. Yeah. Don't <laughs> give these people a chance to come back into the game. I, I have slightly reflected on that position. And I wonder if I'm being a little unfair uh, in that only in that I do th I was listening to Arsenal Visions pod immediately after the game right and um, Paul said I was on the way back in the car Paul uh, Poznan in my pants said um, it's very hard to say Poznan in my pants seriously isn't it yeah I, I said something <laughs> like you know when someone says something you're like I wish I'd said that like I, I think that's really astute and he was saying how that side of a player the sort of um, malevolent, um, troublemaking, problematic... Problematic's not the right word, but sort of overtly aggressive side is often characterised as kind of the defect in their game. But that actually a certain... Within certain teams, you do re sometimes require a little bit of that, that there is a benefit to it. And it does strike me that in those two away games, when we've been getting a bit kicked off the park here and there. Shaka has gone in and got involved in something and and got himself a booking. And at, at home, we're all sat thinking, oh, God, Granite, don't do that. But I do wonder if his teammates respond to it in the same way. I do yeah. wonder if they appreciate it much more than we do. Listen, I would be the first person to talk about how I want Arsenal to to stand up for ourselves a bit more, to to not be cowed by the physicality of other teams, mm. by some of the rotational fouling, some of the cynical, deliberate fouling. You know, when, when Saka gets kicked from behind again and again and again, like I'm absolutely sure there are enough instances of Saka being kicked from behind that you could make one of those, you know, uh, compilations with the NAF Europop tune, you know, in the mm. background, just Saka getting booted and booted and booted. So I want our players to be a bit more in the face of the opposition. I want them to highlight this to the referee. I don't want us to sit there and take it lying down. I absolutely don't. So I'll hold my hands up with that. The thing with, with, with Shaka is it's like it's the old Granite Shaka index. What he does is viewed very much through the prism of him being Granite Xhaka and not him being an ordinary player. And there have been, as we know, some incidents where that aggression or whatever you want to call it, that little bit of edge, that little bit of nastiness that I think every good team needs, mm -hmm. every single good team needs a bit of that from, you know, I don't know how you, you measure it on a scale, but you need it. Um the thing with Jack is there's always that just primal fear 
that because it's yeah. him that's getting involved, the punishment that's going to be meted out won't be commensurate with the with the uh, in inverted commas offense. Like mm. I don't know why he got involved. I don't know why he got booked. I genuinely don't know why he got booked. No, I mean, the, Amy Lawrence did an interview with Granite that's come out today on the Athletic. Yeah, it's, it's very sort of good. Interesting. Yeah. It is is worth reading, and there's a good tidbit in it about. You know, a player, an Arsenal player, being told on the pitch after uh, after an incident where Granite was booked or sent off, the referee said, "Oh, well, you know, Granite, he loses his head," and that may be true. But the problem is, once that perception exists amongst the referees, yeah, 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 you're in a compromised position. So it, it is complicated. I suspect the the likes of Saka, the likes of Smith Rowe, the likes of Martinelli probably appreciate it when if they're getting a kicking Shaka goes in and mm. stands up for them be that by you know what he says to somebody or putting one on them himself I'm sure they value that the issue is is as you say there's a target on his back so you know anything he does will be amplified in the eyes of the referee so it's a very very fine line to tread because we yeah. don't have loads of those players in the team who you'd sort of say well, they'll give yeah. them one back, you know. I did like Ben White's tackle, uh, yeah, which came a few moments a after that. Ben White's got a bit of it, all right, and he's kind of got this sort of, you know, red-cheeked choir boy look to him at times, but <laughs> he really got stuck into that guy. Yeah. Made It was one of those tackles that was perfectly fair, but it was like, okay, we're here too. We're gonna take. Yeah. We're gonna dish a bit out as well if this is the way you're gonna do it. And then whatever the dude that came over and just stood up in his face and White was just having none of it. I I like that about him, and I think maybe we 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 might see a bit more of that um, begin to emerge over the um, over the coming weeks. And if the team continues to make progress, it is something that we are going to have to deal with a bit more because mm-hmm. good teams get kicked. That is the reality. You know, it happens in every single league, in every single Premier League we've ever seen. You know, the good teams get kicked. It's why that sort of iteration of Arsenal, you know, the the, the Arsenal team where everyone said, well, they don't like it up. And the reason we got kicked was because half the time some of the teams couldn't live with the technical level that we had. So the only answer was, you know, to kick us. And we saw some unfortunate um, and unpleasant things happen as a consequence of that and as a consequence of that perception. But it is something that we're going to have to deal with um, if we continue to play well and if we continue to, um, you know, put teams like Norwich, like Leeds, in the kind of compromised positions at home on their own grounds where the game is gone and the only way for them to respond and to sort of get fans back on side is is physical intimidation. So I'm sure mm-hmm. Mikel Arteta is well aware of this and, and the way that, you know, his players are going to have to react. But look, let's not dwell on that too much. Second half. Yes. Second half. Um, there was a shout for a penalty. What did you think of that? Tyranny shot. Do you know what? I actually haven't seen that back, and I, it, it wasn't on Match of the Day or any of the highlights packages I've seen. So I only saw it in real time. So you'll have to talk about that. I my look. It was very much ball to hand. His hand was a bit out, but you know the way I judge penalties. Like how would I feel if that was given against Arsenal? Yeah, and I would be really unhappy, really unhappy because it was a belter of a shot. It was about point zero five of a second between. Tierney um, taking the shot and the ball hitting the hand. So I think it probably would have been 
uh, harsh. I mean, I would have been really pissed off if that had been given at the other end. Martinelli had a goal disallowed um, mm-hmm. for offside. And yeah, only just. Only just. And then Bakayo Saka did the Bakayo Saka thing again. Um, he did. Yeah. I, I like this goal a lot, actually. Yeah. I, there's a really nice pass from Martin Odegaard. He receives the ball in the kind of classic number 10 area and it's just with the outside of his left foot. He almost sort of lifts it around the corner to Lacazette. It's a really subtle thing. I mean, he had a brilliant game, I thought, Odegaard. We haven't even uh, mentioned him. We're like yeah. 35 minutes into the podcast. We haven't even mentioned Martin Odegaard. He was absolutely uh, brilliant, I thought. Yes, he... There, there have been times this season where he has looked the best player on the pitch and it's not just been, you know, there were moments I thought in the first half against the North Spurs in the North London Derby mm. where he was just sensational. And when he is on it and when the circumstances are right, he is brilliant. And I um, I was so impressed by him. I think, I think that Arsenal's improvement in attack... I think a lot of it actually can be attributed to him. I think the way that he links play, mm. the, his understanding of space, his use of the ball, the intelligence in his decision-making and the part that he plays in that off-the-ball side we talked about, you know, uh, pressing, winning it back earlier. I think he's been instrumental in that, really. And it's been a, a really good few weeks for him yeah. after... Uh, I wouldn't say a, a, a bad start, but a slightly sticky start in terms of sort of coming into the team, coming out of it again, having to win his place back. Since then, I think he's been fantastic. Yeah, I think so too. He's been really, really impressive. And actually, there's a there's a another part to that goal after he plays that part to Lacazette. He makes a run into the box and he takes one of the central defenders across yeah. with him. And that central defender is keeping half an eye on him and by the time Saka has come inside to take the shot, the centre-half can't get back across in order to block it. So little small things like that added to his technical quality, his creativity. I mean, some of the... Some of the, the, the little clip passes inside, the precision of them, even though the opposition yeah. must know he's thinking of them, they can't do anything about them. And that variation in the way that we move the ball in the opposition half is really, really important because we're not talking um, right now, maybe we will at some point in the future, but we're not talking right now about the horseshoe. We're not talking about the inability to break the lines, which is something that we were concerned about at points this season. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you have to give Odegaard some credit for um, for his work in that regard in making us a little less predictable when we have the ball in the opposition half. I know there's a lot more to um, the improvement and everything else, but he has played a really uh, big role in that. I think it's, what, three goals and three assists in December for him. So yeah. It's a, it's a really good contribution, you know, and, and we talked about needing players to step up and needing players to uh, to deliver, and yeah, he's doing it. He's doing it after, you know, I don't want to say he was bad at the start of the season, but not quite at the level we thought he was going to be at. No, and there were a couple of moments in this game, I feel there were sort of two or three nutmegs that he pulled off, like first time little touches between a player's legs. Mm. Um, he was he was flying to be honest, and it was great to watch. So I I thoroughly enjoyed his performance. And Saka, you know, great to see that end product side coming. I I've always felt he will score goals. He just as an academy player, he had such 
uh, power and, and devastation in his finishing. I, I do think it's um, it's a matter of time, but that is an aspect of his game we've kind of looked at and thought maybe it's somewhere he could improve and it's a, a good mm. sign that he's making those contributions. Well, six goals for him now this season, which is not yeah. bad. No. You, you would hope, you know, at least for um, decent double figures from him uh, in a season. If he can get to, you know, 12 goals, 14 goals, which is well within his capability, I think. You know, I, mm-hmm. the, the, there's an area I think he he can really improve and that is just the... The, the not the decision making but the execution when he gets into shooting positions it was very good against Norwich there were a couple of occasions this season where it hasn't been quite as good was mm-hmm. it was it the West Ham game or the Newcastle game maybe where he he picked up the ball and beat a couple of defenders really really well to set up a great shooting position for that himself was Newcastle. yeah and yeah. he just sort of shot tamely at the at the the goalkeeper, and I think that is an area where a bit more power, a bit more, um, yeah, more emphaticness, emphasis. How do you say it? I don't quite know what the word is, but you know, just <laughs> yeah. just uh, more decisiveness in his shooting when he gets himself into good positions because he gets into a lot of good positions. Yeah, he does. He does, and I and I think. Technically, in terms of the power, I think he, all the tools are there. He just needs to put it together. And good signs against Norwich. I think, you know, they did make life a little easier for him than many opponents will. Mm. But I think that scoring goals, goals breed goals, you know, that he'll take those finishes into the next opportunity that comes to him and he'll hopefully take that with more confidence and assurance. So, yeah, I was really pleased to see him doing so well. All right. Um, then... It's super sub Emil Smith Rowe. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy what he's doing and how he's doing it. Um I mean brilliant. He came on what with ten minutes to go, more or less, helped create the penalty. Uh, yeah. it was a really good movement, nice pass as well into to Lacazette where he got bundled off the off the ball in the box, but it was just really quick passing and moving around the opposition penalty area that Norwich couldn't deal with. It looks simple, but it's, you know, you've still got to get get in there and do that and make those movements and, and be willing to 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 follow the ball and, and look for those opportunities. Definitely. I think it was almost a, a one-two-one, mm. uh, you know, in terms of his interplay with Lacazette. They exchange passes and then Smith throw the through ball to him is brilliant. He's not actually looking when he plays it. It's one of those kind of no-look reverse passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lacazette gets there first and he is becoming quite uh, adept, shall we say, at being fouled in these dangerous positions. He he certainly has a knack of putting his body between, you know, between himself and the ball and he knows when he feels the contact, he's going down. I I was sure I saw a question actually about this and it could be, let me just see if I can... uh, Let's see if I can find it. But basically, it was like, uh, maybe they deleted it. I can't find it now. But um, Lacazette has won a lot of penalties for us. Yeah. Don't know if he, I think the question was, has he won them all? I'm not quite sure. But he certainly won uh, quite a few. He has. And if you think, if you look at the touch he takes on this one, he's sort of running towards the right corner flag and he actually controls it with the outside of his right boot. If he was thinking about turning and shooting, He'd go outside the defender 
um, onto his right foot to shoot across goal, but he he almost just stops the ball behind him. I think the only thing in his mind mm. here is I'm going to get a penalty. And yeah, in fairness, he does. Yeah, and he dispatches it. Um, well, you know, you missed that one the the other day, but this one, I think he waited for the keeper basically and just put it in the corner. Yeah, it was a good it was a good penalty. Um, Smith Rowe then gets on the score sheet uh, in injury time. I looked yeah. at this, I saw the replays, I was like, oh, I think they're going to give him offside there. But the but, camera angle, I think, was misleading, wasn't it? Was it? It, it, it made or, him look off yeah. for sure. Maybe it's but just I think it was thick an angle. lines. I, I think it was the angle. I think that the uh, because Smith Rowe, I don't know how quite to describe it, but I looked at it as well and I was like, that's offside. But then when I thought about it, the position of the camera, I think, right. influences that perception. I, I, We have to have faith in the lines, Andrew. If we don't have faith in the lines, what do we have? Well, this, this is true. I mean, who are we to question the efficacy of lines, <laughs> of VAR, of the officials or anything else? Look, I, I will say this. Uh, I would say, without wanting to sound like a, a, a conspiracy theorist, if there was any way that that goal could have been chalked off, it would have been. Um, yeah. But yeah. it wasn't. And uh, it's it's four goals in succession off the bench. The first Arsenal player in history to do that. Yeah, and I tell you, 10 Premier League goals in Smith-Rowe's career to date. Five with his right foot, five with his left this is another one for the the left-footed uh, collection. And uh, he does finish very well off both feet. He does. I mean, he always did at youth level, but it was whether or not he could translate that. But, I, you know, there, was always, there were always hints that Smith Rowe, when he started to develop, if he was going to get into the team and if he was going to de uh, develop to the point where he was going to become a first-team regular, was always going to score goals because mm. maybe his first couple of appearances in the Europa League, he scored. He scored, if I remember, was it Emery's first preseason? There were a couple of games where he played in preseason and he scored. So yeah. um, the the signs have been there. I mean, how many goals is that for him now this season? Nine in all competitions? Coming up on yeah. double figures before the end of the year? You know... This was one of the questions that people had when he inherited that number 10 jersey, when he asked for that number 10 jersey, you know, what can he produce? Because there is a responsibility. There is an onus on you when you're wearing that shirt to create and to score goals. And he's doing both. I don't know how many assists he has this season, but, you know, nine goals, three yeah. or four two, assists. Two assists like in the league. Uh, I'm not sure in other competitions. But, you know, he's doing a lot of this from the bench as well, which is quite impressive. What do you think about um, that? Do you think, I mean, there'd be some people going like, how can you keep this guy on the bench when every time he gets on the pitch, he's showing you what he could do in the previous 70, 80 minutes? Um, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't feel like it's an issue, which I think is a really good thing. Like, I don't get any sense that he's disgruntled? I mean, if he's still on the bench in March and he's only getting 10, 15, 20 minutes a game, he's going to be pissed off. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I think right now what's what's happened is he's lost his place because uh, he was injured. He's come back. The guy that took his place is playing really, really well. The team is playing really, really well. I talked about the don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of aspect to team selection, which I think is part and parcel of it. And 
if you're a manager and you've got a player on the bench that you know can come on and make an impact, I think that might feed into it a little bit as well. Like, when you think about what we've got on the bench, Eddie Nketiah, Nicolas Pepe, like, if they come on, you go, well, maybe, maybe they could do something. But when mm. Smith Rowe comes on, you're like, well, how long is it going to take him to score? You know, so <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just think, for me anyway, this the fact that it isn't a big issue speaks to the way this this group of players appear to be quite together and and working as a collective rather than sort of individuals who are putting their own um, playing time or whatever it might be ahead of anything else. I think right now he probably comes on and thinks, I'm going to score here, you know? I, I, I doubt that he is not enjoying this little run he's having of coming off the bench and and scoring I'm, th- I'm sure he thinks this is brilliant I come on 20 minutes to go everybody's knackered I know if I get make runs yeah. to the box I've got a good chance of of scoring and, and he comes away from it with a, a goal bonus and feeling pretty good about himself I think obviously in the long term he's going to want to play more but it's not it's not something that concerns me at all I, I really feel pleased that we have competition for places in those parts of the pitch Yeah, and and also, the other thing to say is, it's a brilliant run he's on. I, I doubt very much he's going to continue scoring at quite this rate. I, I was just looking at minutes per goal in the Premier League. I think only Sterling, Vardy, Jota and Salah uh, are scoring more frequently <laughs> than Emma Smith-Rowe. Yeah. Whether that lasts, I don't know. But I do think that this is going to be... A, such an important part of his development. I mean, mm. I spoke about Saka that it, the confidence he can take from what he did at Norwich, the confidence Smith Rowe will take going forward, you know, the inclination he will have to make those runs into the box, the added composure he might have in those situations when they arise uh, are all going to be benefits to his game. And yeah, I, I think he's been, I think he's been excellent. You know, when you're talking about the most important players at Arsenal this season, even though he's not starting at the moment, he would have to be in contention. Mm. And when you look at his contribution over a year, it has been quite amazing. I mean, this was a Boxing Day win. And was it not Boxing Day last year that Emil Smith-Rowe came into our Premier League team and um, really played a huge role in transforming our season? Um, So, yeah, you, you, you... can only take your hat off to him. He's been quite amazing for 12 months now. Yeah, it's incredible. Fair play. And uh, look, there's a lot of football to play, uh, particularly next month. There are going to be games. So, you know, yeah, yeah. this idea that just because a player is, if you want to say out of favour, I don't think out of favour is right. When you're coming on every week and you're scoring every week, you're not out of favour. But when you're out of the starting lineup, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're surplus to requirements or that your time is is coming to an end. You can look at um, Kieran Tierney, maybe, as an example of that. Somebody who, not too long ago, people were saying, well, Nuno Tavares, he looks like the player. Is it all done and dusted for Kieran Tierney? And all of a sudden, yeah. Tierney is back. He's making assists. He's scoring goals. Um, you know, nobody's, nobody's questioning that now. But um, it's just the way that... that uh, I guess some of the some of the way football is is analysed um, these days tends to lend itself to a sort of short termism or uh, 
what's the word? Like you've got to be um, down on one side of an argument completely or not. Like it's over for Tierney, that's it, Tavares is the man, you know. Yeah, um, perceptions of players yeah. uh, vacillates now, I think, maybe more than ever and very, very quickly. And it's interesting, Tierney I thought was really good yeah. against Norwich. Um, Thomas Partey, who's been heavily discussed of late, I thought was much better as well. His best game of the season, I think. Um, yeah. And some was. signs, I mean, there have been some signs in the last couple of games that his confidence is returning um he's feeling a bit more comfortable you could see the way that he was moving some of the the little shimmies some of the passes he attempted and and pulled off are that of the thomas party that we like to think we have you know what i mean yeah and and i do think some interesting things happening in the in terms of the shape of the arsenal midfield i have to actually give a, a shout out to um one of our Listeners, because we spoke about Party and Shaka mm. last week on the show and on our Discord, Hot Rod 4490. He said, Look, I, I think he said, I've got a different take on the Shaka Party axis. If you look, Shaka's played higher up in the last three games than he has previously. And I, I watched it closely against Norwich, and it's definitely true. He's definitely adopting very different positions mm. on the field, much more advanced. Um, you know, there were a lot of times in this game where Tierney didn't overlap to quite the same extent. And when Martinelli was in those forward areas, it was Shaka supporting him. Um, it's it's interesting. And it's and Party. I don't know. He, he, I don't know what it is, but the balance of the midfield seemed much, much better, definitely. Against that, Norwich. Look, I know people have issues with Shaka and I've got my own issues with Shaka. Um, but that that trio, if you like, of Shaka Partey Odegaard seems to be um, functioning pretty well. And myself and Lewis actually had a bit of a discussion about Shaka, you know, because there was one point I think it was in the second half where you know somebody had the ball out on the left hand side and the man screaming for the pass in the centre forward position is Granite Shaka. Yeah, um, it was the Tierney cutback yeah. that missed everybody. Shaka was the furthest. But there man was an, yeah, there was another one as well where Shaka was at the edge of the box. Right. Um, and there was somebody out left. So, you know, there there has been a tweak. And I, I discussed this with Lewis on the Patreon a little bit. And we were trying to figure out the reasons for it. One of which, of course, is instruction. Because, you know, Granit Xhaka isn't going and doing that just off his, his own bat. You know, this is no. this is something that, that's been worked on. Um, you know, Mikel Arteta, um, look, I think we, we know he likes to organize things and he likes the pieces of the puzzle to move around the way he wants them to move around, not because the player themselves feels like they can just go and do whatever they want. But one of the things that I had mentioned or thought might be part of it was, was the fact that Gabriel um, looks a lot more calm, a lot more assured, a lot more comfortable this year. And when Shaka was absent, uh, this season because of injury, he sort of took over that mantle of who's got the most touches, who makes the most passes. And so this requirement perhaps that we had or that Arteta thought we needed for Shaka to drop back in as that like auxiliary left-sided center half slash left back, whatever it is, isn't quite there when Gabriel is able to pick up some of that slack. I think that's exactly it. And, you know, we've spoken many, many times uh became very accustomed to seeing Shaka kind of operating in that left-back 
area. Um, but that wasn't the case and hasn't been the case in the last few games. Against Norwich, he made more passes in the opposition half than any other player on the pitch, which tells you, you know, he was more advanced in his positioning. I think it's about the, the chemistry and the balance on that left-hand side with Tierney, Martinelli and Shaka. I think that they're, they, they don't want Tierney to... This is my perception, but it looks to me like they don't want Tierney to overlap quite so uh, freely. They want Shaka to provide a kind of inside support to Martinelli. And then when he goes in field, that's when Tierney mm. moves forward. And, and and I do think that midfield three, Partey, Shaka, Odegaard, I mean, that must have been the plan. When they sat down in pre-season and thought, right, what does our midfield look like? They would have been the three names that they wrote down. And... You know, we haven't seen it together loads. Um, and I do think that now we have had a bit of a run with that trio, mm. uh, then we're seeing some results. And, you know, it's interesting. No player sort of, I think, quite embodies the speed in change of perception that we witness at the moment, maybe than Alex Lacazette, because he's someone who started the season not even getting off the bench, his contract was running out and it was kind of like, well, yeah, he's being phased out. Then he came on a couple of times and mm. it was, there was sort of clamour for him to play and he came into the team, was playing a second striker and people were like, this is working. Aubameyang and Lacazette together. It's, maybe that's the answer. Then we start to struggle a little bit. Odegaard comes back in. Lacazette's out of favour again. <laughs> and then Aubameyang, the situation blows up. In comes mm. Lacazette and now he's doing well. And it's like in the space of between August and Christmas, he's been down, up, down, up, down, up again. You know, And that's, um, that's the way of it. But yeah. I do think... We, we probably we're all guilty of kind of uh, over analysing these things a, a little, you know. Yeah, there was a good graphic on uh, the by the numbers piece on Arsblog News that Scott did, where you know the the it was the past network um, right. map, which showed Martinelli and Saka as the two furthest players forward. Kieran Tierney, Granite Xhaka, Alexandra Lacazette, Martin Odegaard, more or less uh, in a line a little bit uh, yeah. across there, you know, so it shows you. But then that one big, big circle for Gabriel in that left space where, you know, he's passing to Holding, he's passing to Party, he's passing to Tierney, he's passing to Xhaka. He's even firing some into Lacazette at times as well. So I think that is playing a part. Whether you think Xhaka is the ideal man for that particular role, um, you know, that's a different question, yeah, but certainly I, that's what... whole other question. Yeah, certainly that's what Mikel Arteta has been asking him to do. And in games uh, like this one, in games like the Leeds one, you know, games that on paper, if you want to see Arsenal um, make progress and, and show that there's a bit more to us, these are the games that we should win convincingly if we've got aspirations of being a top team and that's not to be disparaging towards Norwich or to Leeds but you know Norwich are bottom of the table they had some issues with injuries COVID same with Leeds but we haven't taken advantage of situations like that in the past we haven't always done that so to do it in these games to score goals to sort of address some of the fundamental issues that we've had doubts and concerns about and that you know for me in particular has been chance creation and goal scoring to see those improve markedly you know is is a good thing and um yeah you know it, it's a it's a bigger test obviously in our next game but 
when you play these games and you don't do what we did, people criticize. So when we do it, I think we've got to give some credit to uh, to the players and the way that the game plans have been executed. Definitely. And I can certainly see that Arsenal should go and beat this Norwich side. But I think beating them as comprehensively as we did is, is different, actually. I think that is... Uh, not something everybody accomplishes, and you have to, everything mm. has to really come together for that to be the case. And it did for Arsenal, and it has done in the last few weeks. And it's, um, yeah, it's great. You know, we we needed a good run of results mm. clearly after the Everton game. I think Mikel Arteta really needed it after the Aubameyang yeah. thing. Um, and the and the the Everton United games. You yeah, know, th- those if, if, things came very close together. That's true. And, and you know, his kind of, I guess his back was to the wall a little bit in that situation, but his team have really come through for him. Uh, I think it's good because without wishing to be a downer, I think January looks quite tough. I think there's some yeah. some tricky games and a busy schedule on the horizon. Um, but we've given ourselves a, a really good platform going into the new year. And yeah, it might have been nice to add another three points, as I say, if we had that Wolves game, been able to beat them. But can't complain it's been excellent it's been really entertaining as well hasn't yeah. it the last few weeks fun it's been yeah. good to watch us you know it has been good to watch us and you know that balance between being an entertaining side and an effective side is something that that, that managers you know have to contend with but it's good to watch Arsenal it's been good to watch some of the play um, you know a young team growing together and all of that kind of stuff. But some of the football we've played has been really, really nice. And I'm glad mm. to see that. And I'm glad to see, um, you know, that kind of development as well, because, um, yeah, that's that's also been a worry. Um, so I've, I've just enjoyed watching the team and the character of it. And like I said to you, I said to you, I wrote about it on the blog, but I said it to you the night before. I like this team. I like yeah. the team, you know. I don't think they're perfect. Um, Arteta says there's still a lot that they've got to get right, a lot to improve on. Kieran Tierney says we've got to keep our feet on the ground. And I can see that. And I think there are going to be some games and some ups and downs and all of that kind of stuff. But I like the team. I, I like the players in it. I like the character. I like what we're trying to do. I like that it appears to be strategic um, and I'm sort of more inclined to forgiveness is the wrong word, but I'm more inclined to be understanding of when things don't go as well when I'm when I'm on board with the players and what they're doing and how they do things and how they respond um, than I would be or have been when there've been players at this football club who shouldn't have been at the football club, at least not for as long as they were at the football club, who, you know, were in some ways unhealthy parts of of the club and the team and everything else. So when those things are gone, it's much easier to be a bit more understanding um, when things aren't quite at the level you want them to be. You've got to accept some variance in performance level and results because we're not a team that's going to... Um, you know, go through a season unbeaten or anything close to that yet. So we are going to have to contend with some difficult days and some difficult results. But when I feel like the the effort and everything else is honest from this group of players, I, I can live with that a bit more easily, you know? And I think that sentiment that you're expressing is 
quite widely felt. I mean, one thing that was really evident, I know it's Boxing Day and everyone's in a good mood, but the connection between uh, team and supporters is really strong at the moment. Like the away fans were in excellent voice and there is such affection for these players uh, among among those travelling fans. I mean, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to go all over the place watching Arsenal, but the the sort of number of individual players whose sort of names are sung raucously or joyously right mm. now, it feels particularly pronounced. And maybe some credit has to go to the people who've come up with those songs because we've got a few good songs at the moment. But I genuinely think it's that there, you know, there is that kind of slight hero worship thing happening where these these fans do love these players. And Kieran Tierney's celebration, I don't know how much of it was caught on camera, but... <laughs> It, it, he went wild in front of the away fans. It I have a question about see. that. I have a question okay. about that. So maybe yeah. maybe we'll do that in part two. Well, we, we should take a break here because we have been going a little while. So okay. let's let people um, pause and make a cup of tea or get a Christmas beer or whatever it might be. Come back in part two for questions and more right after this. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to part two of the Arscast Extra. This is the one where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at GunnerBlog and at ArsBlog, and also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. Uh, I took my own advice, James, and got a uh, Christmas beer. So oh, while I take a slug of this delicious Scraggy Bay Pale mm. Ale, I will ask you the question. Go on. There has been talk of Ainsley Maitland-Niles leaving the club, going to Roma on loan in January. Uh, but from the Discord, Zed Quinners says, would Maitland-Niles leaving leave us shorthanded in midfield? We'd be left with Shaka and Lokonga for like eight games because obviously Mohamed Elneny and Thomas Partey are going to AFCON, although I did just read right now that Partey will be available for the game against Manchester City, which is uh, a good thing. But after that, obviously, he'll be gone. There's two games against Liverpool and North London Derby, etc., etc. Maitland-Niles, I mean, do you think that's the kind of deal we can do in January without having something else lined up? 
Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised that it seems to be progressing quite so early. I mean, maybe it won't go through, but if it's going to happen, it would be surprising if he played for Arsenal while it's kind of in the offing, you know. Um, I think it does leave us a little light. I have to be honest, you know, Charlie Patino, bless him, was on the bench at the weekend, but it would be very soon, would it not, to ask him to play, mm. uh, I think, either Premier League football or, to be honest, a Carabao Cup semi-final against Liverpool, which will be, um, even if they rotate heavily, quite an intense occasion. Um, so, yeah, I, what does leave us with? Shaka, Elneny, Le- oh no, Elneny will El be gone. gone. Shaka, Lukonga. As yeah. recognised central midfield players. I mean, there are options. I mean, I think you can look at Odegaard and Smith-Rowe as players who could play in there if you need well, them to, depending on the formation you use. But you, you can't play that pair in every game. So I think you'd have to start thinking of those players as mm. guys who could play there. Uh, you know, if you were being really creative, you could mention Callum Chambers, but we've spoken in part one about how he's just not really part of things at the present time. Um, after that, I'm sort of scratching my head. I mean, genuinely you do start to think maybe Ben White because he played there a lot for Leeds United a couple of seasons ago um, and has done the job very well in the past. And if you've got Rob Holding, maybe that's an option. Mm. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't relieve him of any game time. It doesn't help us rotate him or any other players necessarily. Um you know, what are we going to do? Ask Ben White to play every every game? Just some of them are in midfield now? I don't think so. It so, seems to be the plan so far. <laughs> it does, actually. He's played a lot of football. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't rule that out. I think that might happen. Uh, but, yeah, it does, I mean, I have to be honest and say it does leave us looking a little bit like... If Maitland-Niles were to go early on in the window, um, mm. I'd be worried about that. What, what about you? It wouldn't make a great deal of sense to me, to be honest, to let him go early in the window. Um, maybe I mean, we I would, guess... Sorry, we, I was just going to say, yeah. I, I, if they are putting some money on the table, for, you know, a loan fee and a sort of attractive uh, purchase clause, I mean, I've seen 15 million euros mooted. I don't know how true that is. But if that were the case, I could see Arsenal's... I could see why they're like, we've got to take this chance to move this player on because he's never going to sign a new contract. And yeah, it's it's time. You know, I can see yeah. why I, I can genuinely I can see why it's time for for Ainsley Maitland-Niles to move on. But yeah. I just worry or would have some concerns about the timing of it. You know, if you think you can get a central midfielder in during the January window, and you hang on to Maitland-Niles until such time as that player is in and ready to play, then let him go. I can see the logic in that. But mm. not 1st of January, off he goes to Rome, and we're there with with Xhaka and Lokonga. You know, we spoke about Xhaka, and I think we'll speak a little bit more about him. But, you know, the the, the potential for Xhaka to be missing for three games, you know, is, is not... It's not far. Um, it's not impossible True. for that to happen, you know? So he's sort of so, like yeah. living under a volcano, you know? At some I mean, point, it's going to go off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, yeah, apt analogy. But I think 
So let's look at January, right? You've got Man City on the first. Mm. Following week, you've got two cup games. Liverpool at home in the first leg of the Carabao Cup, then Forest away in the FA Cup. Yeah. The next week, the second leg of the Liverpool game, which may be quite a big game, depending on how you feel about that competition. Then the North London derby on the Sunday. Mm. Um, then uh, it's sort of harder to call, I think, because it depends on what happens in the Cups and various things like that. But Burnley on the 22nd is a, is a given. Um, but that little period, you know, two games in, four games in a fortnight, two of them against Liverpool, one against Tottenham, is t- looks testing to yeah, me. Yeah, it is. It is. So you want as deep a squad as you can possibly have, considering that you're already losing the two midfielders to AFCON as well as Aubameyang, who, you know, we know is out in the cold at the moment anyway, uh, and Nicolas Pepe, who really doesn't play a huge amount. Um, So you'd still rather have them around than not, you know? So it is going to be very testing. Yeah, I mean... yeah, the, tra- the transfer question is a really interesting one. Uh, I had one here. Let me have a look. It was about... Here we go. Matt Knight on Twitter. Should our league position affect our January business? Or or is this the type of short-termism that's led us mm. to successive eighth-place finishes? Do we yield to, t- to the temptation and clamour to splash out on prime age signings to secure fourth? Or do we stick to the long-term plan? It's a really good question. It's a really good question because, look, a lot of what happens and a lot of what you think and a lot of, a lot of what you do is based on um, the circumstances. Like, would Arsenal have embraced this youth policy if we'd finished sixth last season, shown a little bit of improvement, and yeah. you would say, well, actually, you know, if you could get in one or two more good players, maybe you could push for fourth. The fact that we went down the road we went down is a consequence of finishing eighth and not having European football and needing to find a different way of doing things. Um, I I wonder if, you know, at the upper echelons of Arsenal, the manager, the technical director, the owners, you know, if they had considered, realistically considered, being part of the top four at this point of the season. Maybe it's something mm-hmm. that w- they, they hoped for, but I suspect when they were thinking about, like, what can we do this season? Let's just get ourselves back into that top six, take a little step forward, then we can build on that again. But here we are in a pretty decent position. Um, and I wonder if that might just change the way they're thinking about what they need to do next in terms of transfer market. You know, it, it is, on the one hand, an opportunity, if you can find the right player. On the other, if you can't find them, do you compromise? I'm not sure. I'm not I mean, sure. The thing, the thing is, the, the, the African Cup of Nations group stage ends, I think, around the 18th, 19th January. Certainly, Ghana's last game is on the 18th. So, we might get those players, some of those players. I mean, you know, Mm. they may progress further in the competition, but we might get one of those guys or some of those guys back after that hectic fortnight I just discussed. Mm. So, are you going to do a deal that might only be for a fortnight? 
Do you know what I mean? In terms yeah. of an emergency signing, I don't think you do do that. I think if you bring someone in, it's because they're a long-term target. Mm. But but if you but really, like the time we need the most is in about a week. Yeah. So I'm not sure how likely that is. Yeah, but also, you know, when we talk about circumstances, there are circumstances that involve, let's say, the the striking position because we do have. Although it was quite interesting, um, Arteta talking about the cloud that was over the strikers at the club yeah. right now because Lacazette and Keddie are heading for six months left on their contracts. You know, I don't think you can you can fault in any way the the um, the commitment of those players when they're playing, but. They may not be part of the future. The Aubameyang situation mm. remains up in the air. We don't know if he's going to come back after the AFCON or not. So sometimes circumstances dictate that you have to do something, whether it's midfield, whether it's striker or whatever it might be. So that situation coupled with, you know, I, I said this on the, the Patreon pod with Lewis, you know, when I watched that first half against Norwich, it was so blindingly clear to me that that the striker is the next thing that this team needs, mm. you know, um, which is to take nothing away from from what Lacazette has done in the last couple of weeks. I think he has been very good and very effective. But you know, when he missed that headed chance, I'm thinking, oh, you know, that's that's what we need our centre forward to do, as well as doing some of the good stuff that Lacazette has been doing. We need him to be a penalty box threat as well, mm. um, which you know he isn't really. You know, he's doing most of his good work outside of the box or slightly deeper you know his average position uh, when you look at it is 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 a midfield position uh, based on that passing network um that i referenced earlier he's basically playing in midfield so we mm. need that little bit of extra something there so i do wonder if you know if the player is available if they might do it in january but i think also, it'll be yeah. difficult you know, we've, we spoke about Maitland-Niles. Do the club have to take this opportunity to move him on? What if someone comes in for Eddie Nketiah, you know, in January and he's saying, I won't sign mm. a new contract? And if Aubameyang's not available for selection, but you get the money on the table for Eddie, guaranteed, yeah, then, you know, maybe you've got to take it and then it necessitates some business. I think it's going to be a really interesting month. I think the club will try. And I think one thing we know about Mikel Arteta, every transfer window that rolls around, he is motivated to improve this squad. And he never said, he, you know, Arsene Wenger would always kind of bat these questions away a bit and say, well, you know, we're very happy with the players we have. Arteta's always got that thing of like, you know, we, if there's an opportunity to improve the squad, we'll do it. I feel yeah. like you need that bit of agitation, that friction to work on the people above to say, look, Let's push on. That's a really good point, actually. And I hadn't considered it, but it is true. It's one of the things that he is most forthright about, about mm. the the way that you can use the transfer market to evolve and improve the squad. I mean, when he first took over, there was, you know, uh, there were some quotes about like how the only way that we can do this is by spending money. Yeah. And to, you know, to bring players in. Um, and he's quite non-committal about lots of things. You know, when he talks about 
a disciplinary breach for Obama Yang, that's kind of all you get. And when he's asked about, you know, Smith Rowe or Saka or Martin Odegaard, uh, you know, he, he praises them, but at the same time um, offsets that with something else like, well, you know, that's what we expect. That's what they should do. That's what we need from these players. They've got to keep going. They've got to keep improving, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, he praises on one hand, but on the other, he's trying to keep people's feet on the ground. But, you know, he obfuscates a little bit about certain issues and certain decisions that he makes. But on this, he's been pretty forthright all the way through uh, ever since he's taken over. So let's see what happens in January, yeah. And I think when he wants a player and he feels that opportunity is there, he really digs in his heels to try and make that happen. And um, I'm sure he'll be working on the owners to to put their hands in their pockets again, you know? Can I ask you just a follow-up on that one, given that yeah. we were talking about this opportunity we have and the fact that we have... Um, got ourselves into a good position. And, uh, you know, at the start of the season, if you'd asked me what a successful season for Arsenal would be, I would say, you know, top six, more points, more goals, signs of Mm -hmm. progression, you know, not just the league position, but how we get there. Um, But we have a question from... Dushyant Gupta, who's at Dushyant AFC on Twitter. He says, morning, guys. My question for today is, if we finish in the top six instead of the top four, would this season be considered a success or a failure? I think that's just an interesting discussion point. Yes, it is. It really is. And I think um, I think a lot depends on how that happens. I, I, mm. I'll give you the case of kind of Unai Emery's um, sole uh, entire season in terms in, in charge of Arsenal. Uh, he narrowly missed out on the Champions League and reached the European final. But the nature of how those uh, how they missed out on the Champions League and 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 how they performed in that final really was defining for him in some respects um and i think a lot will depend it's it's quite difficult to say how it will feel you know if arsenal are in fourth spot until the final day and and chuck it away with a you know or not the final day but the final few weeks and chuck it away with a similarly poor run at the end of the season that will feel very different mm. to, you know, a closely fought race where we are actually chasing somebody and just miss out and it's through no great fault of our own. It's really difficult to know. I think that um, I, 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 I still am very cautious about Arsenal's um, chances of finishing in the top four. And, and I recognise we are in the top four. Yeah. But... When I look at the squads, particularly you know, the, particularly the degree of experience and quality that still lies in that Manchester United squad, if they can somehow figure out a way to make it work, I, I still, think, mm. I still make them favourites. Actually, yeah. Look, I think um, I'm really pleased with where we are, and I'm pleased with the sort of the ability to deal with adversity, even if some of that adversity remains self-inflicted. And it's failure versus success. You know, they're two quite um, definitive terms. You're right to say how it happens will play a part. Because I wonder, 
I wonder how Leicester fans view their seasons when you think about where they finished in the last couple of years. I mean, I'm not saying they're punching way above their weight, but finishing in European places or there or thereabouts, but they were in the top four for most of the season on both occasions and then fell away right at the end. Yeah. Is that that must feel like failure, but on the basis of what you expect preseason is probably there or thereabouts, you know what I mean? Mm. Which isn't to say success either, but it is how you fail or how things go wrong that will define this. Um, look, I'm just pleased that we're sitting here, we're heading towards 2022, and we are where we are, and we're talking about this possibility of being in the top four, and it's not a ludicrous possibility it's not a pie in the sky you know it's not it's not like are you fucking insane which might have been the discussion a few months ago and a legitimate discussion a few months ago so to be in this position is pleasing let's see what we can do let's see how much consistency we can uh, produce in the second half of the season um and we'll know come may whether it feels like a failure or whether it feels like success yeah. By the way, you're supposed to ask me about Kieran Tierney. People I was. will be wondering what happened to Kieran Tierney. Okay, well, hang on. Let me just see if I can. I've got to find this question now. You've caught me off guard here. Um, okay, it comes from Sammy, who's at AFC Sammy 10. And he says, goodly morning, uh, or goodly afternoon. But he said it in the morning, so he's correct. Anyway, what do we make of Kieran Tierney's constant anger at scoring goals. If you look at each goal he scored for Arsenal, he never cracks a smile. It's always rage. Does he need to learn not to expend so much energy during them and maybe stay fitter? I don't quite know what the correlation between his fitness and his rage face uh, when he scores goals is, but what do you make of that? What do you make of his celebrations, his his sort of uh, primal uh, screams or, or whatever it yeah, might be? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's just got a very... Uh northern european temperament in some way you know he 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 he's he's got that um that's his character like kieran tierney i don't it doesn't surprise me massively that he and arteta sort of developed quite a good understanding because i think they're both quite intense characters um i think that although we sort of make light of some of kieran tierney's habits and you know the tesco plastic bag thing and stuff like that i think he is actually quite a serious person mm. and um I, I i think that you see that in the way he approaches the game and i think that's partly what arteta loves about him but i also think that in that particular celebration i think there may have been two things contributing to it one is that i think not long before that he'd been fouled maybe um and was sort of reacting to that. But I think maybe a bit of frustration as well. I mean, he's had a quite a stop-start, difficult start to the season. You know, he was mm. out the side, on the bench for quite a long period and may have been aware that people were questioning, you know, his status as Arsenal's first-choice left-back. Uh, and I think he has come back from that really impressively and maybe that goal capped it. And there might have been a bit of a release of frustration in that celebration. Um but uh, yeah, I, listen, I loved it. And the fans absolutely loved it. It was uh, a really raucous moment. Yeah, I thought it was great. I like that. Um, you know, 
just a bit of fucking fuck you-ness to the celebration. Yeah. Um, which I think was directed as much at the Norwich fans because it did come after that period where the game was getting a little bit tetchy and where it was getting mm. a bit physical and it was a bit like, okay, I'm going to run behind the goal. I'm going to celebrate here. I'm going to jump. Yeah, in the I air, thought he might you know? get booked. Actually, I, I, I genuinely yeah. thought he might get booked because it it felt quite um, inciting, you know, mm. and the referees are understandably sensitive about that. But. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a sort of fuck you go and a bit of a fuck you celebration, I think. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Uh, let's hope we see more of it as well. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I love a, a Kieran Tierney goal. And as I said in part one, I think that's a, a, a much better finish than it looks. The simplicity of it, I think, uh, takes away from the yeah, quality yeah, yeah. to a certain extent. Guided it beyond the keeper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me have a look for another question now. Uh, we spoke about Saka, really. Let me ask I mean, you this what, one. Sorry, let oh, me ask you on. this because yeah. from the Discord, it's, uh, we talked about Tyranny's finish. Yeah. Uh, Gagan J says, have you noticed how many of our goals recently are low strikes? Do you think we're deliberately working on this in training or is it just natural variance? Hmm. I hadn't noticed, but uh, maybe it is something they work on. Maybe it is. Uh, I mean, there's a logic to that, right? Low in the corner, mm. very, very difficult for a yeah. goalkeeper. Yeah. Um, that's a good finish. Uh, yeah, I mean, we are taking our chances well at the present time, mm. uh, by and large, a few exceptions, so could be. Um, well, th- listen, we talked about this right at the top of the show. Javino's forehead on Discord says, are your expectations for the City game that we'll lose and hope that we do so with dignity, or has that changed over the last few weeks? Um, like I want us to be a bit more competitive against mm. them than we have been, and there were a couple of one-nil games, um, which I think City were well on top in anyway, uh, and they didn't really have to get out of second gear. And I mean, my hope for this is that Arteta doesn't go too galaxy-brained, as he has a tendency to do when he comes up against Pep, you know. Like, he knows me, I know him. What will he expect me to do? Aha! I will do something that he'd never expect. Was Willian at False Nine one of those? I think it was. Uh, the Etihad, we did do that. Yeah. yeah, so let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's accept the fact that what we're doing, we're doing well, and try and do that against Manchester City, even though it is going to be extremely difficult. Um you know, They're it, quite good, aren't they? They, they are, are quite, good. quite good. I think that's fair to say. It would be really... I mean, the game at the Eddie had earlier in the season, we were down to 10 men. Was it just before halftime or just after halftime? I can't remember. Before, I think. Just before, okay. So, you know, you're playing a full 45 minutes against Man City with 10 men. We were a couple couple of goals down anyway at that point simple goals though wasn't one of them like a header from Gundogan you know our our central defenders didn't really cover themselves in glory Um, so look I don't really have an expectation that this is a game we can win if you were to offer me a draw right now um, I'd bite your hand off but what I don't want to see is the kind of hammering that we got earlier in the season, the kind of hammering that we got uh, uh, against Liverpool, you know, 
it feels a bit like that Liverpool game a couple of months ago or six weeks ago, whenever it was, when things have been going pretty well and we said, well, this now is the real test of, of how far this team has come. And in some ways, I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's quite where you can really draw conclusions from what the team is capable of. Because if you can beat Norwich 5-0, if you can beat Leeds 4-0, 4-1, whatever it was, if you can beat West Ham, if you can beat Southampton, if you can beat these teams around you, you can still end up in a, in a, in a good position in the league and you could still achieve more or less what you want to achieve. But you can't... I don't think you can keep losing these games by big margins and convince people that the other side of your season, even if it's good, is as sustainable as you would like it to be. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. I don't know if, I don't know how true that feeling is. Like, I, yeah, I, that's just my feeling. Like I yeah, I'm yeah. not saying that's that's definitely the case. I'm just saying that like you know, we, we've talked about um, the team taking two steps forward and one step back, two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back, whatever it might be. Um, and, and I mentioned that I like how we deal with adversity, but I don't want us to be always um, firefighting mm. at points in the season when, you know, you could... I mean, the, the Everton and United games are a great example of this where they're two, you know, big clubs, but both of them not in great shape. And you're saying, well, these are games where we could really show that we're capable of this, that, and the other. And instead, we displayed some of the old failings, and that raises doubts and concerns, which are understandable. And then we respond the way we respond, which has been absolutely brilliant. Um, but I think we need to... We need to show that we, I don't mean go toe-to-toe with Manchester City. I don't think that's realistic at this stage of the development of this team. No, but, do I. But, but, you know, don't make it easy for them. Make them, if they're going to win this game, at least make them work for it, you know? And in previous games, we haven't made it that difficult. Yeah, I think that's I think that's completely fair. I think that these big games, in inverted commas, I think they weigh heavier in terms of perception. I, I, the points are always the same. Do you know what I mean? You get the same points for mm. being Man City as you do for being Norwich, but the perception that comes with them um, it tends to sort of resonate more. You know, it, Arsenal at the moment, a lot of people are saying, well, they're only beating. Norwich, they're only beating Newcastle, they're only beating Leeds, but ain't everybody doing that? You know, you've got to go and do it, and there is a certain degree of consistency Arsenal have shown, I think, um, in games against smaller teams or teams you would expect them to beat. It's been very different against the likes of particularly Liverpool and City and Chelsea. Mm. Um, The difference this time is it's at home, which should help our home record is very good as discussed it's still going to be a mighty test uh and and i think man city are certainly favorites but yeah a bit like the fourth versus sixth question a lot of it will depend on how it happens and how it makes Mm. people feel Mm. um i certainly think we've got more of a chance than we would have done if we had to play wolves i do think that I think yeah, that I agree. A, a bit more fitness, a bit more rest, 
players getting a day off that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, I hope, in theory, it's yeah. all it's all it's all in the positive column there. I hope we've got Tommy Asu back. I don't know what the situation with him, how long he has to isolate for if he's tested positive, um, and all the rest of it. But I hope he is available for this one because, you know, um, Rob Holding better defenders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can have the White Gabriel partnership again. Rob Holding's been caught out a couple of times in the last few games against Man City, headed goals that he should be doing better with. Um, and I don't think that's um, a coincidence. So if we get White back uh, or White back into the centre and Tommy Asu at right back, I, you know, uh, yeah, I think we, we've got a better chance, certainly. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be a very different team from the one that played uh, at the Etihad. You know, it is different because very we've got those new signings. Yeah. We'll have a new, basically a whole new back four. Um, and goalkeeper uh, for this game. A midfield that appears to be functioning, some forwards that appear to be scoring. So, you know, there's some there's some silver linings there if you want to look at it like that. So, Yeah, fingers crossed. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, look, you just don't know. It's impossible to, to really predict other than it's going to be extremely difficult uh, because City are so, so good. They're so good. Um, the land on Discord says... What is it about Granit Xhaka that 90% of our fans are done with him and 10% of our fans, I don't know if the percentages are right though, all of the managers he's had in his professional career and all of his teammates swear by him. Um, I mean, I think Xhaka is very much a Marmite player when it comes to the fan base. No two ways about that. But the managers and the coaches always pick him. The players seem to love him. He's very popular mm-hmm. in the dressing room. He is seen as one of the leaders. Um, and he says, have you ever seen a player like this for any team? And I don't think I have. I don't mm. think I've ever seen a player cross the line as many times as Shaka has in terms of, you know, the disciplinary things, the red cards, some of the stupidness which is, you know, any, any player can make a mistake. Um, with him, it always feels a bit more like, oh, well, that's, that's it now. We can't have any more of this. But he always, seems to, he always seems to come back from it. But I don't think, I think it's genuinely fascinating. Even if yeah, you're not is. a fan of Xhaka, it's genuinely fascinating how he operates. And I think there's a measure of cognitive dissonance on his part as well I really enjoyed the interview with Amy in The Athletic I thought it was very good I think he's an interesting character he drives me mad at times Um, there are other things about the way that he thinks about you know his role uh, that I think are quite admirable Um, you know if you want to be a bit of a leader or a bit of a muscle or whatever it might be like it would help if you weren't as clumsy and didn't have that reputation and all the rest, but I can't fault the intent. Um, mm. But it is a, it's just like, I wish it was maybe happening at another club, but it is really quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that the answer to this is basically that we, that there are things we don't see and that, that, that is kind of the difficulty of in our position as fans and even in a position as a journalist is that you're reporting, analyzing 
a certain percentage mm. of what goes on inside a football club. Even the most informed people, you know, do, do not know every instance of every dynamic. You know, take the Aubameyang situation, right? Like, uh, it's been quite extensively reported and there's a lot of detail in there. But I wouldn't hesitate to say that there must be aspects of it that we don't know. Oh, 100%. There's quite a bit about it that we're not aware of for, for yeah. Exactly. If, something, if you're looking at a situation and it doesn't make sense, then the answer is usually, well, there's something there that you're yeah. unaware of. And and I sort of think Shaka, the Shaka conundrum is part of that too, that, that we can't fully appreciate his role within the dressing room because we are not in the dressing room and it's not for us. It's not performative. Mm. It's, it's something between those colleagues that we are not part of. And, you know, I think, I think, I, I don't think we'll ever close that gap really. And I think he is a particularly tricky person because he's so uncompromising and so, um, I guess single-minded would be a kind way of saying it. Mm. Um, that I, I think, you know, there's not that sort of dialogue between supporter and player because for him, his job is very clear. And mm. that comes across in the interview. He's like, I serve the club. And he doesn't seem to regard the fans as well a, a big <laughs> component in that. I don't know that I would agree with that. I think he does recognise that the fans are a major part of it, but his his very specific dialogue with the fans, you know, at times has has been um, unacceptable. I think it's fair to say it's unacceptable. And look, I don't want to go over the whole thing again, but I think he was in some ways a victim of the indecision and um, foofing around of Unai Emery when it came to handing out the captain's armband that summer, mm. you know? So I'm not excusing him, but I think there was a, you know, there was a, a whole build up to that thing, which I guess was frustration on Jack's part because he obviously felt he should have been the captain, you know, straight away. And instead, Emery sat on it for a couple of months. And then, you know, by the time it had happened, the team was beginning to fall apart and, you know, Xhaka was in some ways a lightning rod for some of that frustration, but at the same time, the way he reacted and the way he behaved was not right and it was not acceptable. Um, but, I mean, he is who he is. So whether you like him or you don't like him, this is what we're going to get from him. And Mikel Arteta, who I, I think people might say is someone who doesn't put up with a great deal that he feels is either unacceptable or injurious to what he's trying to build and trying to create at Arsenal, is willing to um, to deal with Xhaka and all his various foibles, you know? Yeah. And I guess, like, that's what I mean about there must be something in that gap. I mean, you mm. could look at that and go, well, Mikel Arteta is potentially insane. You know, he, he is a, <laughs> like, he is a madman. Why would he possibly do that? Or Granit Xhaka is blackmailing Mikel Arteta. I think that those kinds of solutions are unlikely. The likeliest reality is that 
the negative things that we perceive are offset by positive things that we do not perceive. Mm. And and that's my impression as well. That's my informed impression from speaking to people. You know, he is held in extremely high regard. And when I say about the fans, I just mean that Shaka's single-mindedness and his... Um, what is that word? Sort of lack of self-reflection. Maybe that's unfair. Uh, it is potentially a weakness and can be a weakness, but it can also be a source of strength. I was very struck by that interview with Willian that did the rounds recently where he was talking about how unhappy he was at Arsenal. And, uh, you know, he spoke about the fans didn't take to him because he came from Chelsea and he wasn't performing. And and the, the clear sort of impression was that these things were kind of cumulative in his unhappiness and, uh, and contributing to his underperformance. Whereas I could never really... Mm envisage Shaka being bothered in that way because his level of self-conviction appears to be incredibly strong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I didn't feel that way at all about the Willian interview, by the way. So No? No. What did you think? I thought, well, maybe if you tried, you know, maybe yeah. if you tried a bit harder. Yeah. That's Professional all. footballers try, though. They do try. I don't think he really did. I think he went through the motions. I think he thought it was going to be easy. And uh, he was found out. Yeah. Well, I think that... I and think I do that, think... That, I mean, obviously, the Chelsea thing played a part because it is very difficult to warm to a player who's played for a local rival who you've disliked. You know, it's like Silvestre coming to Arsenal. It's like, how the fuck am I supposed to ever get on board with this guy? You know? Mm. That's just part and parcel of football. But I think you can win people over if you if you make it look, I don't I don't mean that he should have just run around like a madman, but there were times where you could see he you know, he, he played poorly, the team played poorly in that period as well. So I'm not saying it's all down to him, but there were times where he just didn't bother. And that's what swung the fans, I think personally impossible to say isn't it because because we all arrive with preconceived ideas yeah, Do you know I, what I, mean? I know so what I like, believe though I know what I believe well you sound like Brandon Shaka <laughs> <laughs> but I I, I, I I think like uh that's my point I think yeah. even if we t if we take Willian at face value the idea that the opinion of the fans would influence his performance mm. would I don't think would occur to Granit Shaka I really don't mm. And that's like, it makes him, I think, quite unusual. Uh, and it is an unusual situation. I know some people are so bored of it, to be honest. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people today saying like, oh, bloody hell, everyone's talking about Shaka again. And I get it. I, I, and and so for some people, it's not about his personality at all. They just don't think he's a good enough player. Um, yeah. And that's completely valid. Have you got one more? Let's do one more quick one each, if we can. Um... Yeah, sure. Uh, I haven't really, to be honest. I've sort of, I've sort of done everything I wanted to do. But if you've got two, I'll happily do them. Okay, I've got one here from. I've got a couple from the Discord. So my okay. scooter Sasha says, upon rewatch of the game, it seemed that Saka deliberately stomped on Williams' leg after a hard foul. Do you think it was? Do you also think it was deliberate? If so, is it anything to be concerned about, or just chalk it off to a one-off bad decision? It seems like he's getting a bit fed up with the rotational fouling. While I totally understand. 
understand the frustration. I hope it doesn't manifest itself into something that could get him sent off. Didn't see it personally. Not be. I'm not even being Arsene Wenger about it. Didn't see it. Did you see it? I did see it. Yeah, there was a a foul towards the Norwich penalty box area, and he just seemed, you know, that kind of tangle of legs thing. Yeah, he just seemed to sort of land his studs a little bit on the back of the guy's leg, but it wasn't. It certainly wasn't um, like if the guy standing on Tommy Asu's face was a hundred out of a hundred deliberate, which I think it was. Mm-hmm. This was like seventeen. And it wasn't even designed to hurt him or anything like that. Um, mm. I, I think if if Bakayo Saka wants to give a bit back to a guy who's kicked him a few times in a match, I've got no problem with it. I've got no problem with it because, you know, if the perception grows that you're somebody who can be kicked, you are kicked. And that's what sort of feeds into the the stuff I talked about earlier on about the reaction and about the team and, and the manager standing up for him when he does get kicked because he gets kicked a lot. He's fouled more than any other Arsenal player. So I don't really have any issue with, with Saka giving, giving a bit back. I mean, I don't think he's going to turn into Joey Barton. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not going to run on the pitch. Zaha on our hands. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? Yeah. I mean, that that's a good example, actually, from, you know, from the other day, um, you know, stemming from frustration that he probably carries around from how often he's fouled as well, because he's that yeah. kind of player, because he carries the ball. Exactly. I think it, it's sort of, that's built over, yeah. cumulatively over his career. To be honest, uh, maybe I'm being kind of uh, too naive, but I, I'm not sure Saka is really that sort of character certainly yet at his age i think uh i i, I, I yeah i wouldn't mind it a bit of nastiness from him but i don't necessarily see it right now okay final one big joe wall 72 says very random question what is going on with martinelli socks they don't appear, know what well, i'm trying to find to out be, they appear to be ripped in the middle halfway up the back of his calves i don't know if mm. i've just noticed but it's been like that for the last few games. And I wonder, is it like that? Because we can notice because the dark socks, you know, the, the bit of underneathiness shows yeah. much more easily um, than when you're wearing white socks or, you know, red and white stripes. So, any well, idea? He's not, the, he's not the only one doing it. It's happening all around the Premier League. A is lot of players it? are cutting holes in the back of their socks, yeah. What? So I, I actually thought yesterday, I'm going to try and find out why that is. I have no idea what the cause is, but there are lots of players doing it. Mm. What could it possibly be? I, I, don't, I don't know. know. Unless they get very sweaty shins and they want to let a little air in to get underneath the shin pads or whatever it is. I mean, the socks cannot be that restrictive that they need to you know, free their calves so their calves can express themselves. Here I mean, we go. Oh. Carl Walker, apparently, was one of the first to do oh, it regularly. God. And he cuts his socks with scissors. Apparently, it is to do with constricting the muscles in the lower half of the leg. Really? Releasing the pressure fends off the possibility of cramps and can prevent pain in latter periods of they're, match. There's socks... They're not like the, you know, you know the ones you have to wear if you go on a transatlantic flight to stop you getting a deep vein thrombosis. 
Those mm. kind of real tight ones. They are quite elastic, though, football socks, no? Yeah. They're socks. I know, but, you know, I guess what happens is a player does this to try it because they've had a history of Mm. muscular problems or something. They do it. They score that day. They do it for the rest of their career. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure. I don't don't know how scientific it is, but it seems to be a trend. Um, And listen, it seems to be working for Martelli. So... He can cut loads of holes in his clothes, as far as I'm concerned, if he keeps playing like this. (laughs) Yeah, sure, that's fine. Uh, Yeah, well, I'm glad we've got that mystery solved. Um, Oh, I've just seen the Saka stamp on on Twitter, as I was just literally hopped back on Twitter. I've just seen it. Yeah, he does do it, actually. Yeah, but it is like a 17 compared to the other 100. It's just one of those where, you know, look, I'm here, and you're down there, and now you're down there, and I'm up here as opposed to me being down there and you up there after you've just kicked me. So don't forget I'm here while you're down there. That's Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm sort of proud of him for doing that. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I think he should I, do I, it. You know, he's got to... Look, He's he's got to... Look, it shouldn't be on him. I think he needs more protection from referees. 100%. Um... I have a feeling that other England players would get more protection. Mm. Like if it was Harry Kane being kicked with that frequency, he would get an awful lot more free kicks, or at least there would be a lot more yellow cards dished out to the uh, tacklers than um, there have been to the guys who've tackled Bakayo Saka. So, you know, he, he does have to, I don't mean just stand up for himself, but, you know, he has to let the opposition defenders know that he can't be intimidated. Small no. thing, but it is part of what he has to do in order to stand up to this. And hopefully, you know, in combination with better protection from referees, it's something that will will go away. But the thing is, good players get kicked a lot and fouled a lot. Yeah. And he's one of those where, you know, I'm not saying he's... If you remember how often Jack Wilshire got fouled, um, because of the way that he plays, those shifts of balance, as you talked about earlier on, um, sometimes the skill level of the attacker is far superior to the tackling ability of the defender. And, yeah, that ends up with fouls. So. It does look like, yeah, that's going to be something he's going to have to deal with over the course of his career. All right, well, look, we should leave it there and just take this moment to wish everybody out there listening, uh, given that this is uh, the last Arscast Extra before the new year, a very Mm -hmm. happy, healthy and uh, prosperous and healthy, in particular healthy, 2022. Um, And thank you for being with us throughout 2021. Hopefully we've uh, been able to... uh, Uh, keep you on the straight and narrow in terms of um, your Arsenal experience. And we do really, really appreciate um, everything that uh, you do in terms of listening, downloading, subscribing, and all the rest of it. So we want to wish you a a very happy new year. Happy new year, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope 2022 is a good one. Let's hope so. All right. We will be back after the Manchester City game. Indeed, we will. Possibly on the Sunday. Oh, yes, we are, aren't we? We're doing it on the Sunday. That's right. Thank you for the reminder. We will be here on Sunday then with a brand new Arscast Extra for you. So join us for that. Until then, take it easy. Bye-bye.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.